You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. We're going to change the focus for the rest of the hour and put it onto a subject that we regularly discuss here on Detroit Today. And of course, that is the topic of race, the topic of racism, the topic of racial inequality. In this moment, talking candidly about racism and longstanding inequity is really vital, especially as we're just now kind of collectively digesting and coming to terms with the tension and anger that made way for the events that transpired on January 6th in Washington, D.C., the uh, insurrectionist white supremacist mob that attacked the Capitol. While Donald Trump lost his re-election bid and is in the midst of being impeached for a second time, it's important to consider the far-right extremists who heeded Trump's calls to come to Washington, their loyalty to the hateful and damaging ideology synonymous with the Trump administration, the Confederate flags they paraded around the Capitol, and the fact that even though they no longer have an ally in the White House, they still live here in America. They're a part of this nation, interwoven into its fabric. So how do we contend with that? How do we move forward? And how do we advance our collective conversations around real racial healing in America, a country whose very existence is based on genocide and white supremacy. Here to talk with me about this and more is someone who spent a lot of time talking with Americans about race and identity in recent years. Michelle Norris is an opinion columnist with The Washington Post. She is also the former host of NPR's All Things Considered and creator of the really wonderful Race Card Initiative. She is giving a keynote speech today for a Wayne State University virtual event titled Eavesdropping on America's Conversation on Race, which happens at 1 p.m. this afternoon and is free and open to the public. Michelle Norris, welcome to Detroit Today. Hello. So good to be with you again. Yes. Good morning. It's great to have you back with us. Uh, it's exciting that you're going to be with us here in Detroit uh, today at uh, at this Wayne State University. Uh, I like to think that I'm in Detroit. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, Although I'm not really sure. Travel. I'm in Detroit in my in my. I'm visiting the state of Michigan in my mind. <laughs> I'm not sure you would want to be here right now, given the weather here. It is yeah. pretty miserable, but uh, but I but I love that uh, that you would love to be here with us. So uh, you made history back in 2002 as the first female African American to host NPR's All Things Considered. That was almost 20 years ago. Uh, Talk about ways in which the conversation on race, the conversation about race and inequality has changed uh, since you broke that barrier uh, and bring us forward to this moment uh, where I think uh, we're a little more, uh, I think, willing as a people, as Americans to talk about race and racism, but we also have more uh, white supremacy and racist ideology in our faces than I think we've had uh, in recent years. Well, Stephen, I like that you said we're a little more. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> because, you know, we're, we're really moving like molasses very slowly through this process. Um, when I first joined uh, public radio, we would have conversations um, about race and racism and 
um, issues involving equality, inclusion, but it was usually when events dictated that. Hmm. So there was um, a, a row with the police. Uh, someone was breaking a barrier of some kind. Some, someone had passed on who had gone to glory, who had died, and we were examining their life. But it was usually situational. And I think that that started to change in a significant way with the election of President Barack Obama, because he held a, a, a mirror and a window up to America, and people started to think about their own place in society when a man of color occupied the White House, when a black family moved into the White House. That was, I think, um, a, a, a milestone and in some way a triggering event that caused us as a nation and caused us as journalists to, to dig into issues of race in a different way. But along the way, you, you mentioned, you know, in your, in your opening, the word white supremacy several times. Mm-hmm. We weren't really talking about examining, interrogating um, the notion of, of white supremacy, supremacy, I don't think, outside of, again, um, if there was a, you know, the, the Klan marched in a town or the anniversary of Brown v. Board. Mm. You know, we looked back on the battle days of Jim Crow. And we weren't necessarily examining the fundamental reality of white supremacy in society today. And even though things have changed slowly, there has been a much more um, significant uh, awakening in the last 12 months because of, you know, the, 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 the global pandemic, the racialized outcome that we see around the pandemic, the street protests sparked by the killing of George Floyd. You know, and Ahmaud Aubrey, and Breonna Taylor, and Elijah McClain, and you know that list goes on and continues right through Kenosha, um, and now with the storm of the Capitol, I think we're at a point where we realize that we have, for a long time, treated racism. What I, I like to I like to to describe it in this way that for a long time we were retre- treated racism as sort of a side dish, <laughs> and not even the side dish you liked, um, but the one you kind of pushed around on your plate. Um, and we realize that it's actually a main dish. It's, it's, you know, it's on the menu every day and it's usually served hot and more and more people are starting to realize that certainly in journalism, uh, but I think more broadly in corporate America, on college campuses, in police departments, at the kitchen table or the dining room table in people's households, that this is something that is, you know, not deep below the surface. It's not a fringe issue. It is a core issue in America. And if you want to understand America, both historically and in this moment, it's something that we need to figure out how to examine. Yeah. And and maybe that is the the milestone of, of, of this moment that I, I love how you how you put that, that um, that we're not, I think, collectively thinking of white supremacy or, or racism as the exclusive provenance of, you know, people who burn crosses on, on people's lawns or, or ride around with, uh, you know, white sheets on their heads. Uh, I think a lot of people, in fact, are beginning to, to at least think about the ways in which very normal American behavior, very normal American institutions uh, embody uh, white supremacy and, and that it sort of takes it away from this uh, this sort of space of, you know, intentional malice and, and violence and says that our everyday lives are, are shaped 
by this notion of of white supremacy. And I, I, I do feel like that's a different space for us to be in than than just a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. I think people are actually understanding that, you know, when you look at a workplace, when you look at uh, educational outcomes, when you look at health disparities, these things don't happen uh, like the weather. You know, like <laughs> it's not just that the winds blew a certain way or, you know, a neighborhood looks a certain way because people drifted into that space. There's intention at work there. Um, these things happen because of a series of very small decisions, some of them made by large institutions, frankly, some of them made by government policy, mm-hmm. but some of them also made by individuals at all kinds of different you know, points along the way in determining who gets a mortgage, in determining who gets access to an advanced placement class, in determining um, insurance rates in determining what resume, you know, you there are all kinds of studies that show us that, you know, you and I could submit a resume um, and anyone listening could submit a resume and they could do a beta test and you could submit two resumes. And those resumes could be um, exactly the same in terms of your educational attainment, your experience, um, your, your CV and your recommendations. And you change only one thing, the name at the top. And Henry is going to get a lot more callbacks than Enrique. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Kenneth is going to get a lot more callbacks than Kwame. And Sheila is going to get a lot more callbacks than Shaquilla. Mm -hmm. And that's just, you know, that's that's not me just spouting. There's a a large body of research that supports this. But can I just add something about talking about white supremacy? And one of the things that I've learned both in doing research and in listening to lots of people talk about this issue over now 10 years is that when you have an event like the um, storming of the Capitol and really the the four years of the Donald Trump presidency really cresting in a a crescendo of, of white supremacy and nationalism that we saw, it almost, it makes it easier to talk about these issues, but at the same time, it also makes it harder to talk about these issues. Because there are, are some people who will look at that and will bristle when you attempt to talk about white supremacy, not capital W, capital S, but white supremacy that sort of just drifts through life, because they will look at that and say, well, that's not me. Mm. So if you're talking about that, and that's white supremacy, and you're trying to discuss it on a much more granular level um, in the workplace or in the schoolhouse or in the locker room, um, it becomes a little bit harder because then people feel like you are equating them with the marauders who stormed the Capitol. And that happened over time with Bull Connor. Um, That happened over time in Red Summer. And there are these flashpoints that then become definitional when you're starting to talk about white supremacy and you have to help people understand that that, 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 that's something that manifests in lots of different ways. And it doesn't just become the image that then easily becomes the caricature of the marauder at the Capitol or the pot-bellied Southern sheriff or um, the night Riders yeah. in America. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking with uh, Michelle Norris, award-winning journalist, opinion columnist for The Washington Post and former host of NPR's All Things Considered. She is going to give a keynote speech uh, with Wayne State University today at 1 p.m. titled Eavesdropping on America's Conversation 
about race that is uh, free and open to the public. Uh, we're talking about this moment uh, in America and how we have sort of changed the way we think about race and racism uh, and white supremacy, how we discuss those things among ourselves as Americans and uh, whether we're pushing very fast or somewhat slowly, I guess, uh, toward the time when we can eliminate these incredible gaps uh, that are caused by white supremacy and racism uh, in our nation. Uh, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, give us a call and tell us how you're feeling about the state of our collective conversation about race and racial equity in our country. Uh, did you participate in the BLM marches uh, over the summer in 2020? Uh, what are you doing now to try to keep momentum going around this issue? Uh, also, give us a call and tell us what are the biggest ways you see race intersecting with your own life or the issues that you see uh, affecting your life and your community. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter and put comments there, <clears throat> and we'll try to include you in the conversation uh, that way. Uh, Michelle, I want to talk uh, about the Race Card Project, which is one of my favorite uh, initiatives to try to get people uh, to, to sort of confront uh, things that, uh, that they ordinarily wouldn't. Um, and for listeners who aren't uh, familiar, the Race Card Project uh, is this, this really wonderful idea to get people to express their feelings about race and race, uh, racial inequality in just six-word essays, six words uh, to tell uh, your story uh, about race and racial inequity. Um, Michelle, you launched this in 2012. Um, and talk about when you first were going around back in 2012 talking to people about what you heard, and maybe the difference between what you hear now, what six words uh, are coming out of people's mouths today? Well, I, I actually launched it in 2010. It's 10 oh, years old. Okay, it's 10 years old. Wow. Um, yeah, so I, it started to get, I guess, more wide recognition in 2012, but we originally started, and that's when it moved into more of a digital space. Okay. We originally started soliciting people's six-word stories in 2010 after I'd written a book about my own family's very complex racial legacy, and I I um, I created the race car project based on a mistake, and I'm I'm willing to admit that <laughs> I thought people didn't really want to talk about race, and so when I went out into the world to talk about my book, which was about my family's complex racial legacy, I created this um, invitation, hoping that it would ease or lubricate you know the conversation I was embarking on a 35 city book tour, so I was going to be facing audiences night after night after night. And we originally asked people to submit their cards on postcards, their stories on postcards. We moved into a digital space uh, a few years after that, and in part because we created a website and it was just easier when people were on their website to submit their stories in that way. Um, but it also allowed us to submit the six, to, to collect the six word stories, and it allowed people, we added two words to the form, anything else. And Stephen, that was like opening a, a spigot. Hmm. Because people would share their six-word stories, and then, oh, you want to know why I chose those six words? And then they would submit, you know, essays. Sometimes they were just a sentence or two, sometimes paragraphs, sometimes a treatise, sometimes, a, you know, a full white paper on, on why they feel the way they do. And what I realized is that um, 
a lot of people do want to talk about this, and there's not an on-ramp for them. You know, uh, we now, through our forums, ask also how people found out about the race card project, and sometimes it's because they're using it in a corporate setting or they're, uh, it's used in hundreds of schools, so a teacher assignment or a teacher mentioned it, but a lot of people will say that they found it through a search engine. You know, trying to talk about the something so complicated, mm. you know, the issue of race and identity and belonging and inclusion, and that you turn to a search engine as opposed to your best friend or your spouse or your coworker or, you know, some other family member. And it, it says to us that, um, that people actually want to have this conversation. They're trying to figure it out. They're thinking out loud, and this is a space that allows them to do it. And for our benefit, you know, the other thing that I was wrong about and I'm willing to admit is when I embarked on this journey, I thought I thought that this was going to be a project where I would primarily hear from probably primarily black and brown people. Mm, mm. I'm African-American. The subject was race. I think through most of our lifetimes, race is a proxy for brown people's issues. Um, and that's not what happened. A, a very large number of white Americans over time, over 10 years, um, have stepped up and shared their stories. And I think there are very few initiatives around race that have this kind of buy-in um, from white America and, and also from, inter- from people internationally. We have cards that have come in from more than 96 countries, so we're learning about the lived experience of what we call race in places where race is not even part of the vernacular. Mm. But people still figure out how to otherize people or how to, you know, create some sort of gatekeeping function around who's really this or who gets to be that. And so it's been it's been a heck of an education, you know, to have the opportunity to use this as a taproot to go places that I otherwise could not go as a journalist and listen to people talk about, you know, this really fraught issue. And if you go to the website, and I hope people who are listening do, you know, you will encounter all kinds of people. You will encounter people whose views represent those, for instance, who stormed the Capitol and those who marched on the streets in, you know, our summer of protest. Um, It it really is a a broad spectrum archive now and something that I hope, um, it certainly helps me and I hope those who visit the site and and those who use, you know, this exercise um, in their own institutions or even at their own dinner table will that it will help people understand um, an issue that we have a hard time talking about and that they will see life as lived by someone else because that's the other thing that we have a hard time doing is understanding. You know, I understand my perspective. I know my journey. But it's sometimes it's hard to understand someone else's. Sure, yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this wonderful conversation with Michelle Norris. Uh, we'll also get to your comments. Kendra in Oxford, Chris in Detroit, we'll hear from you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll also read some social media comments that we've gotten. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Today on 1019 WDET, 
I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. My guest is Michelle Norris, award-winning journalist, opinion columnist for The Washington Post, former host of NPR's All Things Considered, uh, and she is giving a keynote speech with Wayne State University today at 1 p.m. titled Eavesdropping on America's Conversation About Race. If you want to join the conversation, we are talking about uh, this moment in America and race and racism, racial inequality. Are we closer to solving those problems? Are we closer to creating an America that's not framed by white supremacy and racial inequality? Uh, Let's go to Kendra in Oxford. Kendra, what's on your mind? Hi, I am calling just because um, I just wanted to share my story. Well, I... um growing up in a white area and um, seeing racism firsthand, I never quite got the grasp of it. And it wasn't until gangster rap hit the scene in my young teenage days where I actually, that's where I learned about the inequality. You know, when F the police came out, I had no idea that people just because of the color of their skin Mm. were being like harassed and just going through all these things simply because of where they lived and what they looked like. And through the years, um, that, that type of stuff actually opened my mind to all sorts of things like, you know, the LBQ, you know, the transgender, you know, the whole, the whole thing of just accepting people mm. for who they are and what they are, not by anything else that goes along with it. And weird enough, I have gangster rap to think for that. Wow. Wow. Kendra, that is, that is some story. And I, I think, uh, it it speaks uh, really strongly to the cultural power of of hip hop in general, but but also of of gangster rap itself, which you know gets a pretty bad rap in 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 some circles. Uh, Michelle Norris, it, this is exactly the kind of thing I think you guys unearth uh, pretty frequently in the Race Card Project. These these individual stories that are often surprising in the ways that uh, they reveal how we understand race and racism. It, it really is an invitation to candor. And, and Kendra, thank you for calling in and, and sharing your story. She says that, you know, it's, an, it's surprising or unusual that, that gangster rap was a prism that helped her understand race. It's, you know, it's actually probably not that unusual. Um, gangster rap is an art form, mm-hmm. not seen as that by a lot of people, but um it is where people are expressing their truth. It is where they are telling their story, just as poets and authors and artists, um, you know, who paint or sculpt do in other realms. And through that, um, they created a window that allowed people to see a world that they probably wouldn't travel to without, you know, rolling up their window and locking the door. Yeah. And and so it's it's not you know, entirely surprising that it has been educational. And, and, you know, we are now at a point where um, universities here in America and abroad have entire college courses that examine the canon of of, of rap, you know, Mm -hmm. from hip-hop to gangster rap, um, not just for, you know, the beats and and the bars, but also to understand the lyrics and the story that it tells and the story of America that tells – in an America that doesn't always reach to these places to, you know, with any kind of interest to look into those lives and include um, that history in, you know, the larger history of America. Yeah, yeah. And so I love that, that you know, she told that story and, and, um, and allows us to, you know, to make that point. You know, I, she feels like 
uh, gangster rap was sort of a window onto a world that she didn't know much about. I can remember specifically the song she's uh, referring, NWA's uh, F the Police. Uh, when it came out, I was I was 19. Um, and I, what it made me feel was was heard. I mean, it was it was the first time for me that that popular culture was really reflecting something that, you know, that I had experienced uh, uh, myself and that I thought was um, was something that people didn't understand. I mean, it, it's really interesting that kind of flip side of one piece of of, of culture and the effect it has on on people based on on, on their own their own experiences. Uh, again, Kendra, thanks very much for the call. Uh, let's go to Chris in Detroit. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, uh, how you doing, Stephen? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, I've been listening to your show. I enjoy your show. I listen to it all the time. Thank you very much. I, I was telling the guy that took my call. Really, sin sin starts in the garden, and the guy put them out the garden to eat because they had low self esteem. Uh, bias and prejudice is, is a product of low self esteem. It's not about you know. It's 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 not about you know what you think. I can put him down so I look like I'm way up here. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Really, you know what I'm saying? And it's a product of low self esteem, and it starts what's talked about around the kitchen table in the black communities. A lot of us we don't we have kitchen tables, but it's the discussion that you have around the kitchen table, you know, with your family. You know what I'm saying? Bias. And prejudice is a product of low self-esteem. That's, mm. that's what I believe. Yeah. Uh, Chris, that's a, that's a really great observation. I'm really glad you called. Uh, Michelle, it strikes me that uh, the, the race card project is a way to unearth that as well, that, that, uh, that notion that um, insecurity drives a lot of what we see as expressed as white supremacy. Uh, in our in our society, and of course, back to the beginning, uh, was the foundation for the subjugation of, of of people of color. Well, you know, racial codes codes were essentially about power, um, about putting people into various categories. Before America was raced, you know, mm-hmm. using race as a verb. Um, there's a wonderful book by Toni Morrison, among her many wonderful books, called A Mercy, which is a little slim book, and I in people who are interested in the subject should put it on their syllabus mm. because it, it it describes the moment in America when we started to create these categories basically to keep people from banding together mm-hmm. and um, and challenging uh, you know people who are on the you know higher end of the economic ladder and over time what has kept those codes in places is, is yes prejudice bias often fueled by status um, by, you know, various fears of, of some kind of altitude adjustment. And the notion that I, I have to, in order for me to feel better about myself, I need to know that I'm better than somebody else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's this, this saying that, that I think helps you understand how calcifying that is, is that if, if, you, if that is your viewpoint, and you need to hold someone down. You need to hold someone down in a ditch. You're not going to move forward in life if you have to keep your foot on someone's <laughs> shoulder in That's that right. ditch. Yeah. You know, because you, you know, you, you have to stay there. You're stuck. And that is um, an image and a metaphor that that you know helps us understand this. You know, I, I after listening to an awful lot of people over ten years talk about these issues, you know, it's this is not always the case. I'm never going to make a blanket statement. 
but I have learned that in in some cases, in many cases, hatred is just fear that is expressed in a different octave. Sure. Yeah. And and at the heart of um, you know that 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 deep seated hatred or that deep seated bias is a fear of something. And um, and sometimes it's a fear of a loss of status. Sometimes it's a fear that, well, if you have what I have, then I'm not special. Anymore. Right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 that sounds like you know that sounds like a toddler, right? It sounds like <laughs> the kind of things that you know you did when you. But but that's that's at the heart of us sometimes. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. No, it is. And a notion that we live in a country where there's enough for everybody. There really is. Yeah. We live in a you know in a country of great um, wealth of resources, economic wealth. Um, human capital, um, talent, and if we could have more conversations around that frame as opposed to a zero-sum frame. If someone is getting something, that means I'm getting less of it. If someone is moving ahead, I'm losing ground. Yeah, it's destructive. Uh, Michelle Norris, uh, you can watch her keynote address live today at 1 p.m. at wayne.edu slash live. The event is free and open to the public. Michelle Norris, it's always great to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Stephen. Love talking to you. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we talk with Macomb County Executive Mark Hackle about how the vaccine rollout is going in his suburban county. I will also catch up with Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation.